Our scripture passage for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 20 as we read verses 1 through 42. Hear now the word of God. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan <coughs> said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is not well disposed toward David, shall I not send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. <clears throat> and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, if I send the boy saying, and I will send the boy saying, go find arrows, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. 
Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has surely happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day of the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave him his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Father, would you make us willing tonight to hear your word? you grant us your spirit to hear, to believe, and to understand your scriptures and to see the love of your Son within them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was younger, as I learned about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, now my children, I need to explain this, I was not alive for the bombing of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> um, that was many, many years before me, but as I, as I learned about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, I sort of began to form an image of these events in my mind. And one of the things, one of the mistaken impressions that I got rather early on was that the bombing of Pearl Harbor was completely out of nowhere, the definition of unprovoked uh, surprise attack, right? And there are some ways in which this is not entirely wrong. But what I, I later discovered as I got older was that it was more complex than that. 
in reality, J- Japan did not just up and decide one day that they were going to attack the United States. Instead, there had been years of simmering tension between the nations as far back as the Great Depression. In the 1940s, before Pearl Harbor was attacked, Japan had allied itself with Germany and with Italy. And in response, America had passed embargoes and economic sanctions against Japan. So in other words, even though America was unprepared for the attack on Pearl Harbor, it was actually the result of a long-simmering conflict. Even then, it was really only the, the beginning of a long painful conflict that would that would last even longer than America's war with the Nazis would last. Tonight is in some ways the beginning of one of the most tumultuous seasons and difficult seasons in all of David's life, the, the, the time when Saul is openly at war with David, pursuing David, trying to, to kill David. But as we see, and as we have seen over the last few weeks as we've gone through this passage, it doesn't happen suddenly. It it simmers, uh, but it eventually comes to a boil, right? It it goes from being a a still time to being a dangerous and violent situation as the heat gets turned up. And so much like Pearl Harbor, not everybody sees this conflict coming. Jonathan, for example does not believe that there is conflict. He believes that everything is fine. And then David, on the other hand, knows this is simply not the case. And so as we dive into the narrative this evening, let's see if there aren't a few lessons about godly wisdom and discernment that we can learn from the situation. In particular, I'm going to suggest that we look at three things. Human wisdom, life's shortness, and faith's discernment. First, we see human wisdom and its presence in the life of David, especially through Jonathan. Um, We saw, you perhaps remember what happened a few weeks ago. Saul made repeated attempts to kill David. Um, First, he tried to spear him at the wall. Then he sent assassins to David's home. And then David fled to Ramah. The assassins pursued David to Ramah. And then they were overwhelmed by God's spirit. So they couldn't capture David. They couldn't kill David. And then Saul himself went directly and determined that he was going to kill David, and even he was overcome by the Spirit of God. And so now this is at least four attempts on David's life by this point. And so David goes back to Jonathan to talk with him, and he wants to speak directly with him about this. You know, David is thinking to himself, you know, maybe I've sinned, maybe I've done something wrong, maybe I... Maybe there's something I can do to sort of appease Saul so that he's not so angry. How do we diffuse this situation so it's not so bad? And Jonathan's answer is interesting. He he tells David that Saul won't kill him, right? If If he was planning to kill David, Jonathan, of all people, would know, at least so he thinks. If you remember Jonathan's last conversation with Saul, Saul did say that he wouldn't hurt David. Um, And then he proceeds to try to kill David. So he's already shown himself to be very dishonest. There's also already a history here. And and surely Jonathan knows that. But you see, Jonathan still believes the best of his father at this moment. Um, 
He believes that Saul must be sorry and that he won't do it again. This is what Matthew Henry says. He says, Jonathan, from a principle of filial respect to his father, was very loath to believe that he designed or would ever do so wicked a thing. So he thinks, he thinks, I've seen my father's temper before. I know that he's an explosive personality, but he would not go all the way and kill you, David. He wouldn't do it. And if he was going to, Jonathan says, I would know. And so Jonathan is telling David, you can trust my judgment of this situation. Here's the thing. Jonathan does end up being wrong. Uh, In verse 31, Saul directly tells Jonathan to kill David. And so what we learn in this moment is Jonathan's instincts can't be trusted. His instincts are wrong, even though they're well-meaning, right? His instincts aren't reliable. That, and that's all that Jonathan has at the moment. All Jonathan has is his real, his instincts, right? His, his insider information uh, and, and how, his sense of the situation. And so he ends up being wrong. On the one hand, Jonathan is giving the best advice he can possibly muster, and he is motivated to give good advice. He's speaking his mind. He's saying what he really believes. But the outcome of this situation should, should really remind us that it is insufficient for us to exclusively depend upon worldly comfort and worldly advice and worldly best guesses. Right? Any comfort that doesn't come from God, it may be well-intentioned. It may be from a reliable source even, but if it doesn't come from God, then it's going to fail. Or at least it can fail. Yeah, here we are, we're in this season where, uh, as a nation, we're living in the midst of this pandemic. And I think some of us wished and thought that it would be gone by now, right? Here's my question. Since March, since February, when, when all these, this news started to emerge about, about the coronavirus, where are you looking for your comfort? On the one hand... We should look to the best sources that we can so that we can be well-informed, so we can understand what the situation is. We should look for reliable information. We should look to wise experts, people who are are careful thinkers. We should seek out real facts. We should seek out correct information. But if we can only find peace of mind by finding worldly assurances, if we're only finding peace of mind by looking to those worldly um, sources, Well, we should just remember that those can fail us. And I'll give you one example. I know a lot of people, and by the way, this might offend some of you, um, because this may be you. You may have been looking forward to this. I know a lot of people who were, even back in February and March, they were already just getting excited for summer because they said, you know, summer is just going to eradicate this virus. When the heat gets up, this virus can't spread. Uh, it's just going to be, this is going to be a heyday for the coronavirus. It's just going to get wiped out. And yeah, it may come back in the winter, but the summer months, oh, the heat's just going to kill this thing. Um, And we saw our nation's leaders saying that and hoping that that was going to be the case. And what have we seen, though? Here we are. We are seeing that in subtropical environments, the coronavirus is still flourishing. In Mississippi, where the temperature has been above 90s most days lately anyway, 
uh, the number of new cases appears to have been doubled. At one point, we were having 300 new cases a day. Now we're having 600 plus a day. The heat didn't do it. And if you put all of your hope on that, if you found all of your comfort in thinking about the summer and thinking that it's going to go away in the summertime, well, then your hope is being dashed right now. Were you living for worldly comfort in that kind of situation? Worldly comfort can fail us, especially when it's a well-intentioned guess. Jonathan is giving David a well-intentioned guess. But here's the thing. It isn't that we shouldn't look for reasons to be optimistic. We shouldn't put all of our hope in worldly insight, though, because it might end up failing us. If you put all your eggs in that basket, if you put all your hope in, these, in worldly situations, you're going to end up being failed, or you can end up being failed. We have to live with the greater comforts that God gives the greater comforts that don't fail, even when our lesser comforts do fail us. Jonathan gives his best worldly comfort to David. He gives it from good motivations. He gives his best guess, but it's useless if it isn't true. Jonathan does not really manage to change David's mind. It isn't because Jonathan's lying. Or wants harm to come to David. Jonathan is just mistaken. And David has good arguments here that he actually gives. He shoots down this idea that, that his father would be open with him about it. He says, no, actually, I can think of a lot of reasons why your father wouldn't tell you. But here's, here's the message I want you to hear in this first point. Our ultimate hope has to be in something that can't be lost. Our ultimate hope has to be in something that can't be mistaken because if it is then our hope can blow away like dust when it fails or disappoints us the answer of course is something more sure god's word and god's word alone is dependable enough to stake all of our life and all of our hope on knowing that it won't fail us it is not a best guess that is well-intentioned but it is the truth. And so we look to the Bible because we know that it can't fail us, that it won't fail us, and the hope that it gives us can't be lost. This is flimsy hope that Jonathan gives David here. And the Bible gives us firm, sure hope. And we see that first tonight, the limits of human wisdom. Second tonight, we see life's shortness in verse 3. Um, we see this in David's words to Jonathan, right? Jonathan is trying to convince David that things are okay, and he's doing it using his human wisdom like we just saw in the last point. But David, on the other hand, discerns that Saul doesn't trust Jonathan anymore. David is, is in, in greater danger than Jonathan may realize, and so David says, but truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. David is realizing something that we all need to know, and not only to know, because I think we know it on, on the one hand, but we need to absorb it. We need to make it a part of who we are. He sees the shortness of life. David sees the fragility 
of our time in this world. The Bible teaches us this repeatedly. James 4.14 reminds us that life is a vapor. It can just blow away. Psalm 90 verse 5 reminds us that we're around for a little while like grass, and then we wither and fade. Our life is that short in the scheme of things. Psalm 39 reminds us that our days are a few handbreadths and our lifetime is nothing before God. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Job 9.25 says our days are swifter than a runner and they flee away from us like an eagle swooping on prey. And don't forget Psalm 90 verse 12, where, which reminds us to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See, David is putting this principle in action here in a sense. Um, those who are older among us, I think, can, can almost certainly testify that our days do go by quickly. And it seems like, at least our sense of things, is that the older we get, the quicker the days go by, right? Um, I can say that even at my age, right? Uh, it, it really seems like only yesterday that Aaron and I were 19 years old, uh, newly married, and now we're almost in our 40s. And our kids ask us what the olden days were like now. And uh, it, I think one of my kids asked me, what was it like to watch TV on a black and white TV? And at first I found the question very insulting, and then I actually said, oh, wait, I do, I do know what it was like to watch on a black and white TV. So I'm older than I think, and I'm younger than they think. But it's not just that we, we can age, right? But our, it's that our life can end suddenly. Um, there is a day coming for all of us when our foot will slip. We will die one day. Um, even if we're young and healthy, that can change in an instant. You can get sick. There can be an accident. Something unexpected can happen. And and so, so there is then this sense in which David is right. We all need to see that we are around for only a little while. We're mortal. What does David say? There's but a step between me and death. He's got a sense of the brevity of life. We, we just don't know when our time will come, and we should live with that realization. The Puritans were fond of teaching their children to understand that they will die one day. Some parents are very, are very slow to want to talk about that with their children. They don't want to mention the fact that they're going to die someday. They think, what a grim thing to teach our children, and yet, and yet one of the things we do in our house is we remind our children all the time, you will die one day. You will die one day. For David, he has that realization in, in a vivid way. And, and Jonathan, with all of his human assurances, can't remove that sense from David. Now, David has this, this sense of his mortality. Um, but isn't there also a sense in which there is, there's fear and unbelief behind David's statement as well? Um, in human terms, there seems to only be a step. This is David's perception of things. Uh, there only seems to be a step. But, but think about this. In divine terms, there is not a step between David and death. There is a canyon between David and death. Um, because here, this is the truth. This is the divine, ultimate, big picture truth. There was never a time in David's life 
when the, in the plan of God where there was a step between David and death. Not until he was an old, gray-haired king. Think about that. David has a sense of his mortality. He's right about that. But he is wrong about how imminent his death actually is. And see, David doesn't know that. He, he doesn't have the divine perspective. And so in his fear in this moment, all he can see is this threat that in God's eyes is no real threat at all. David discerns the shortness of life, but in this moment he is human and he still seems to tremble at the threats that are before him. We may have that problem as well. You know, we don't get to see our, the events of our life before they happen. Only God has that knowledge. But let me ask you this. Christian, can you think of anybody whom you can trust more with your future than God? Is there anybody in all the universe? Let's get even more specific. Who is more trustworthy with your future? You or God? Now, I know your, your instinct, I think, is going to be to say, well, well, God, but deep down, you may actually believe that it's you, right? Because you'll say, ah, but if I know what my future is, then I will act in my best interest. And yet, doesn't, isn't it true that God knows what you need more than you do? Even if you knew your future, God loves you more than you ever could love yourself. And I mean that in the best way. God loves you in the best way that he possibly could. And I hope you know this. I hope you see this for yourself. Better for you to be blind to your future and God in control than for you to know the future with God out of control. You hear that? Let me say it one more time. Better for you to be blind to your future with God in control than for you to know the future with God out of control. God is a greater trustee of your life and your future than you could or will ever be. The God of the universe has set his love on you in Jesus. Is there anybody in all the universe who is more trustworthy with your life, your soul, your family, your job, your everything than Yahweh? There is no such person. Only God. See, David lives with a sense of life's shortness. And yet there is also a sense in which he has forgotten the sovereignty of his God. <clears throat> Third tonight, we see faith's discernment. Very briefly, I want to fixate on one last aspect of this narrative. By the end of the narrative, what has happened? Jonathan has learned that he was mistaken. Saul really does have murderous plans for David. He even tried to get Jonathan to kill David, so, uh, to, to bring David so that he could kill him in verse 31. So Jonathan now realizes that his sense of the situation was wrong. He needs to report the situation to David. David was operating with only Jonathan's guesses, and now Jonathan needs to bring him the facts. Jonathan needs to bring him the truth. 
And so Jonathan comes to the field where David is hiding, and Jonathan is going to fire the arrows, depending on where the arrows land and what Jonathan says in response to where the arrows land, David will learn his status in the royal household. Where does David stand in relation to the king? So Jonathan fires an arrow of warning, or he fires an arrow of comfort. David does not know what they will be until he sees and until he hears. See, David's role in this moment is to receive the message and act accordingly. He needs to hear what Jonathan has, and he needs to respond rightly to the message, right? That takes a degree of discernment and a sense of the situation. Let me just say, Christian, Every sermon faithfully preached from God's word is an arrow showing you where you stand in relation to the king. All right, now, it's not the king of Israel, but it's the king of the universe. Every message that you hear from the word of God, whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's in your own Bible reading, Every message that you see and hear from the word of God is either an arrow of warning or it is an arrow of comfort and assurance. So please don't come to God's word only looking for assurance. The, 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 the purpose of the word of God is not exclusively to provide assurance to all of its readers. Because I guarantee you, there are weeks when you hear God's word, when you read God's word, and you really do need to be warned. It is not a time for comfort, it's a time for warning, right? You've been filled with anger. You need to be warned. You've been prideful, and you're not sorry. You need to be warned. You've been cavalier about the things of God. You've neglected prayer. You've lived with a sense of self-sufficiency. You need to hear the warning. If you've been all of those things, and then you come to the Bible saying, okay, where's my comfort for today? You've got it upside down. See, there will also be times in your life, though, yes, you'll need to be warned, but there are going to be times in your life where you need to be comforted. And I don't know where you are this evening. I don't know which it is that you need most, but listen... God's people are often brought low by life circumstances. And, and is it, is it, it, I don't think it's a stretch for me to say that this situation that we currently find ourselves in in this nation where here you are watching this message uh, at your house instead of in church with God's people. This is a time where God's people would be very tempted to despair and to discouragement. Not only that, but maybe you're, you're at home, you're, you're not, uh, life is not the way you wanted it to be, it's not the way you thought that it was supposed to be, and you're really discouraged during this season, and you're not in habitual sin, you're coming to Christ, you're, you're confessing your sin, you're not prideful, you're not standing your ground and defending yourself. Well, you're sorry, right? You try to, you try to grab hold of Christ but your heart is so weighed down by the circumstances. You can't see him through the fog. You can't see him through the worries. There is a promise in Scripture that God is not out to smother you. God is not out to discourage you. 
Isaiah 42.3 promises, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. One of my favorite books by Richard Sibbs is called The Bruised Reed. It is a book for people in this situation. Because in a situation like this, you don't need a warning. You need comfort. The same word preached, if faithfully preached, in conjunction with the work of the Spirit, will bring the same word to bear differently depending on the listener's heart. Sometimes the word of God brings an arrow fired and it's an arrow of comfort. And sometimes the word of God brings an arrow of warning, right? The same word, the same arrow fired, but depending on where we are and when we hear it, a different outcome for each of us. I once preached a sermon, which afterwards somebody told me, I found great comfort from the word and... Another person told me, you know, this really, really stepped on my toes. Those are different responses. Those are very different responses to the same word. I can't tell you how many times I've had that kind of a response and where I've talked to other friends who are pastors who've said the exact same thing. This was the worst sermon I ever preached. And I had two different, somebody will say, this is the worst sermon I ever preached. And I had two very different responses from people. That's the way the word of God is. It actually says more about the hearer than it does about the sermon. But, but you see, God's word is sufficient to, to meet the needs of God's people right where they are and with exactly what they need most. Jonathan has brought the message of God for David. Because now David knows the truth. In this case, it's a warning. In this case, it's, it's a hard message. The truth is the truth, regardless of whether David likes it or not. And so, Jonathan and David embrace one last time. And Jonathan reminds David of their covenant, right? In this case, the truth, the truth results in a covenant renewal at this sad and melancholy moment in their life. All of this is a result of hearing the truth. May we each learn to hear and treasure the truth as soon as we hear it. May God help us to respond to God's word, not with anger, not with fear, but by grabbing hold of the covenant of God, which is for us, just for our children, and for all who are far off in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, often your word has hard things for us to hear, things that we may think we cannot bear to hear. And yet you tell your truths to us because you love us and want us to hear what's best for us. But your word is also filled with unspeakable comfort. The promises you give, the grace that you provide, all of it isn't for those who are well, it is for those who are sick. And so even tonight, would you speak to us and remind us that your word is sufficient, whatever it may say to us. Give us glad hands and willing hearts to receive the truth from your hand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.